This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce. Commissioner Peirce was sworn into the SEC in 2018. During her tenure, she has been a vocal advocate of free markets and supporter of the crypto industry to the point where she is often referred to as crypto mom. Regulation is a huge issue for our industry, and I hope you'll walk away from this discussion with a better appreciation for the nuance around protecting investors while letting innovation flourish. Please enjoy my conversation with Commissioner Hester Peirce. Thank you, Commissioner Hester Peirce, for joining me today on the Web3 Breakdowns. I'm really excited to have you. Eric, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And as you know, I have to give my disclaimer, which is that my views represent my own views, not necessarily those of the SEC or my fellow commissioners. I'm really excited to geek out about regulation because it's a hot topic and something I'm interested in. Before we got into that, I thought an interesting place to start would be this moniker of Crypto Mom, and not necessarily just where it came from. You can tell the story. But I think it's an interesting analogy to talk about the role of a regulator and why there might be a misperception in the endearment of the industry calling you crypto mom versus the relationship of a regulator to participants and this parent child. I love the way that you're framing that. The name came about because I wrote a dissent. I can't believe how long ago now, way back in 2018, on a denial of a Bitcoin exchange traded product, a spot Bitcoin exchange traded product. And here we are four years later, and we're still in denial land. That's when the moniker first, I think, was used with respect to me. On the one hand, I think it's kind of funny. I don't mind it. But for the reason that you're putting your finger on, I think it's important for people to remember that government is not your parent. I think many people in the crypto world would not want government to be in a parental role to them. I think the whole point is that this is a country where each individual is believed to have a unique capacity to govern his or her own life. There's a need for government, but that need is limited. The role of government is limited. Obviously, if my actions affect someone else, then there may be a need for government to come in and regulate my actions. But if my actions only affect me, then I should be able to do what I want. We're not a country of children. We're a country of adults who are responsible for their own lives and the lives of the children for whom they care. But government is not in that parental role. So whatever we do on the regulatory side needs to respect that right of the individual to make decisions for herself and her family. And the individual, for her part, needs to take responsibility for those decisions that she's making. I think that leads to a healthier environment. Another thing you wrote in 2018 was about this analogy of the regulator as a lifeguard. I thought it was a great analogy that really helps people think about it. And I think maybe we'll use that in the interview today. But before we get into that, do you remember the story about the lifeguard and how you think about it? 
I think that was in the speech that I gave on Bitcoin and beaches. A lot of people are thinking about sandboxes where the regulator sits in the sandbox with the people experimenting with new technology in the same way that a parent sits in the sandbox with a child as the child was building a sandcastle. The child is always going to be looking up to get mom and dad's help to see what mom and dad think of the sandcastle that's being built. Whereas if you think about a regulator, a lifeguard on a beach, the lifeguard is looking out over the beach, watching what everyone is doing, looking out to see if anyone's in trouble and needs help, but is not there guiding construction of sandcastles. That's happening outside of the direct view of the lifeguard. I may be botching it a little bit from how I talked about it in that speech way back then. But I think the point is that there is an important role for the regulator, but that role is not micromanagement. I've been trying to think of what's the best way to handle this conversation without getting too in the weeds. And the reason why I love that analogy about the lifeguard is I was thinking the way crypto as a new asset class formation feels like is there's an ocean, there's sharks, there's big waves, there's a lot of danger in any innovative new place to be. But sometimes I feel like the conversation gets so polarized. The notion is, well, if we just shut down the beach, no one will ever get hurt. And that concerns me because I'm looking at a beach with a line of people and they're going to jump the fence and go to other areas without lifeguards that are even more dangerous. I think that as a regulator, you're in this position of how do you strike that balance between letting the innovation actually have a chance versus creating regulation that completely prevents it. That's a nice way of putting it. And there are times when you shut down the entire beach, but that is a very rare situation. In our financial markets, there might actually not be an analog for that because it's always better to keep the financial markets open. We have seen that in the past during the financial crisis, for example, people come in and they say, well, you want to stop the markets from operating. You want to freeze things still in time. That isn't actually the best way to come back to a period of normalcy. It's to allow people to come to the marketplace to work together to figure out what the value of different assets is. Markets are really good at doing that. I think you're right. Keeping that balance of keeping the beach open, having the lifeguard play a role, but really allowing people to experiment and try new things. And look, people have to go into the water knowing that there are risks in there. You want people to be eyes wide open thinking about the risks, but you don't want to tell them they can't get in the water at all. I think we'll come back to the analogy. I liked it so much. So the SEC's mission is three parts. It's to protect the investor on one side, it's to oversee capital formation. And then I think the markets in between, the efficiency of markets. I can't imagine that in your time at the SEC, it's always in balance that the SEC spends a third of its time on each of its priorities. What is the balance at the SEC right now amongst its mission? I think it's important to think about that tripartite mission as being a unified whole. It is this idea of protecting investors, facilitating capital formation, and protecting the integrity of the marketplace. But all of those things work together. Investors are protected when the marketplace is one that they can go into knowing that there are fraud rules in place, for example, to counteract people who would try to defraud. And capital formation can be in tension, I guess, with investor protection, but investors have an interest too in having access to opportunities to participate in building new companies or expanding existing companies. Sometimes we think about investor protection as a very narrow thing of protecting investors from losing their money. That's not really the key. The key is to make sure that they have opportunities to participate in our markets, but they can do so in a way that they can feel comfortable and they know that if someone is coming into the marketplace lying to them, that there are rules that prohibit that and that we, the SEC, can go after them. Maybe this is what makes crypto a bit unique 
it does feel like more of a tension to me that you have this extremely new form of capital formation. And the real concern has been about allowing retail to interact with it or how retail interacts with it. There does seem to be a bit more of a tension there, but maybe you disagree with that. I think what you're seeing is something that I've objected to. And I didn't really answer your question, which is, which one of these are we prioritizing at the moment? Sometimes, and now is one of those times, we prioritize investor protection with a very narrow concept of what investor protection is. It's trying to stop investors from making investment decisions that we regulators think are not wise for them to make. Again, it takes away their autonomy over their own lives if we decide what we think they should participate in as investors or as consumers even, because some would argue we're going beyond telling them about securities and we're telling them they can't buy other assets either. Right now, we're in this uncomfortable position of telling investors, crypto is too dangerous for you. We don't want you to participate in crypto. And that manifests itself in lots of different ways. The irony of that approach is that you actually make it much more difficult to identify the fraudsters from the good actors, because when you don't have a clear rule set in place, it's very hard to distinguish who's on the right side of the line and who's on the wrong side of the line, because nobody understands what the line is. I think the way we've gone about this has undermined every prong of our mission. It's interesting, because I would say it certainly feels like that. It feels like the industry broadly not always, but sometimes paid it as it's all fraud and that the regulators might feel that way about it. So it's created a very big tension or chasm between U.S. regulators and crypto building specifically in the U.S., which is definitely a deep concern for me. The truth is that there are people who are out there committing fraud. And we all know that, that there are bad actors in this space. Bad actors will go to whatever space they think is popular at the time because that's where people are willing to put their money in. So we do have to deal with that. And the SEC has played a valuable role in going after some of the bad actors. But we haven't made it easy on ourselves by not engaging with the good actors to develop a regulatory framework that makes sense and have the conversation about what that regulatory framework should look like. I and my colleagues might not agree at the end of the day on what that framework should look like, but we could try to work on something that would be a melding of the different approaches to regulation. That's better than what we've done so far. For the people that either have interacted or follow the SEC, I do think, and I think others have mentioned, sometimes it feels like a black box. And you've made this point of it's really hard to know what it's like to work inside the SEC if you've never have. I'm super curious, what is it like in the SEC? How does the actual commission work? One thing to lay out is the structure of the agency. The SEC is an independent regulatory agency, which means it's set up a little bit differently than some other agencies. You think about some big agencies have one head, a person who's chosen to head that agency and reports directly to the president. We're set up differently. We're a commission of five people. Typically, we're down to four right now, but typically it's five people. It's politically balanced, meaning that you can't have more than three people from the president's party. The chairman is from the president's party. We collectively, the five commissioners, make the decisions of the agency. So if we're going to sue someone, we sit down together, we talk about that, and we vote on that decision to sue. Or often it'll be a decision to sue and settle with a party. Or if we're proposing or adopting a rule, we all, again, get together, we talk about it, and we vote on that rule. In every case, we have a vote. It's majority vote wins the day. So you can have a situation where three are for and two are against. There are a lot of things the agency does. 
It's about 4,500 people spread out across the United States in different offices. A lot of the work is done at the staff level, not by us five commissioners. The staff reports directly to the chairman. The chairman sets the agenda. He's the one who oversees what the staff employees are doing. There's some decisions that we have the authority to make as the commission, but we've delegated those authorities down to the staff, which means that the staff can make decisions without us ever getting involved in those decisions directly. So that can be confusing too, because sometimes you see a decision coming out and I may not even have seen anything about that decision before it comes out. There's a lot of activity of the staff and of the agency. Crypto is only a small part of what we do. I think sometimes that's a misunderstanding too in this world that people think we spend all of our time thinking about crypto. That's certainly not the case. Just for context of the 4,500 employees, how many are dedicated or work in the Office of Financial Innovation or the division that's focused on crypto? I don't know what the precise number is in our Office of Innovation, which is called our FinHub. I would guess it's probably about 30 or so. That guess could be wrong. But it's a very small portion of the total employee base. That said, we also have a part of our enforcement division, a group of lawyers who spend a lot of time thinking about crypto. Again, relatively small number. And then in each division, there are people who work on crypto issues. Even though that may not be all that they do, that's one of the things they do. It's more than just the FinHub that works on crypto. When you're in a meeting with the other commissioners, I think the industry and Chairman Gensler are a bit at odds with each other. I'm curious, does it feel like you're talking to yourself? How much dialogue when the commissioners come together is debating or are they like, Hester, we've heard it, we're moving on to this other thing? Some of those meetings are public. We have open meetings when we consider a new rulemaking. There's another piece I should probably fill in here, which I think people wouldn't know about. There's something called the Sunshine Act, and that's the law that says if you're having a discussion among the commissioners, that needs to be done in public. Now, there's some exceptions to that. If we're deciding about an enforcement case, that is not a public discussion. We put out something on our website saying we're going to have a closed meeting to discuss enforcement issues, and then that's when we discuss those. I can't talk about what goes on in those meetings. Those are private meetings. The public meetings to consider a rule, anyone can watch those and see. And then there are obviously other interactions among commissioners that are not five missioners, but one-on-one interactions. There are lots of those. I've been very public about the fact that I've not been able to convince my colleagues to take an approach to crypto that I think would be proactive, that would involve sitting down with people in the industry and people who use crypto and figuring out what is it that we need to do to put in reasonable regulations. Because of that, I sometimes do feel that I'm talking to myself and not necessarily getting my message across, but we have to keep trying and we have to keep talking. Commissioner Crenshaw has put out some speeches and statements where she's talked about her views on crypto. So at least there's some back and forth. Chair Gensler has put out numerous statements on what he thinks on crypto. So at least there's some discussion in public, albeit we're not all sitting down together at a table, but you're seeing different views come out. That's at least some progress, though I still think we need to do a lot more. On that topic of learning about crypto, in my experience and talking to other people, I just don't know how you learn about this without interacting with it, owning it, trading it, experiencing it. I know that the SEC is actually prohibited, I believe. I don't know if all of the staff is. You have a deep knowledge of the space, but I don't believe you can actually even own crypto. How do people learn about it having never interacted with it? 
I can't speak for what other employees at the agency do. From my perspective, even if our ethics people said to me, Hester, you can go ahead and do this, I would feel uncomfortable because of the positions that I've taken trying to move things forward. I would feel that I couldn't purchase own crypto directly. And I do think that's a problem. I don't disagree with you at all. It would be much easier for me to think about how to regulate the space if I were able to interact myself with crypto, if I were able to own it, if I were able to see how some of these things work. That is a regret of mine that I can't do that. I try in all kinds of ways to learn about it. I do think talking to people who are engaged in the industry or who are retail people who have crypto assets, that's helpful. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Those kinds of things can be helpful. But I can't deny that not having that ability to interact directly, that is a problem. Based on your speeches and your depth of knowledge, it's been very impressive how much you do understand. I think that's actually where the endearing part of Crypto Mom came from, is that the industry felt like nobody was listening to anyone in it and asking for feedback. You've clearly gotten that moniker because you're doing a good job listening to what people are explaining the problems are. But is the staff able to own crypto? On these ethics things, I just need to concentrate on what the restrictions are on me. And that's where I operate from. There are people at the agency who are trying to figure out how we can experiment. FinHub is one place that we've talked about. This is this Office of Innovation at the SEC. They're looking for creative ways to learn about these technologies. And there's actually quite a bit of knowledge in that office and in other offices throughout the commission, people who have really taken the time to learn about this technology. Some of them may have owned crypto before being at the commission. So there are different ways that we're looking at to try to integrate knowledge into the commission. Another thing to keep in mind is that regulators tend to be pretty conservative people by nature. We're not always at the forefront of different kinds of innovation. And that's not a condemnation of my agency. I think the SEC has really hardworking, dedicated employees who really do care about investors and care about the markets. But regulators just by nature are conservative. That also can make it harder sometimes to get our arms around not only what the technology is, but where it might be going in the future. That's been one of my frustrations too. Sometimes you can look statically at where technology is and you can say, "Ah, I don't think it's that important. I don't think it's that life-changing or world-changing. I can say, well, maybe not yet. And maybe not yet in the United States, because I think sometimes we take a very understandably United States-centric view. There may be needs for this technology in other countries that we can't fully grasp here. Even putting that aside, let's just take a US-centric view. I say maybe now this technology hasn't changed the way people do things or changed people's lives in the way that is really noticeable. But let's look down the road and see where is this technology going? Where is the experimentation going? I don't know that. I'm not a technologist. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a computer scientist. But I have some ideas about what this technology might do to change things. And I certainly want to build an environment in which people can experiment and can think about ways to use the technology to do new things. As I said in a recent speech, we have to maintain a bit of that wonder, thinking about technological innovation and what it can bring and how it can change lives. Sometimes we can get caught up in the here and now and thinking about how the regulation must apply and how you must fit this square peg into the existing regulatory round hole instead of opening our minds up to think, okay, it might not look like much now, but maybe it will in five years or 10 years. That's a great point. 
what I'm most optimistic about the space, you explain it to someone how it works and they instantly feel like they have that entrepreneurial spark. They start asking, could I do this with it? What about this? What about if I could put this? And you're like, this is great. But unfortunately, it feels like the second question is, is any of this legal? Isn't this all getting regulated away? It's this tension of I could feel that entrepreneurial unleash that wants to happen. And then a complete fear of, isn't this all illegal and illicit? Part of what we need to do is we need to say, let's all sit down and think about what our regulatory objectives are, whether it's the SEC or the government as a whole. What are the regulatory objectives we're trying to pursue? How can we figure out a way to pursue those regulatory objectives while still allowing some of this innovation to happen and this experimentation to happen? When we're having that conversation, we can't get caught up in the existing mechanisms for regulation and say, well, those existing mechanisms, we need to keep using those. We need to keep applying those. Who cares about the mechanisms? What we care about is the end objective. If there's a better way to achieve the end objective of protecting investors, let's embrace it. This new technology offers us new potential to better protect investors. So let's take advantage of it. Let's not get caught up in whether it meets the traditional regulatory mechanisms. So that's acknowledging that it's the regulatory objectives that matter and also acknowledging that there's going to be failure on the way. The fact that new projects start up with grand ideas and those grand ideas never materialize, that's not a condemnation of the whole industry. That's how things happen. That's how many of the great innovations in history happen, the great leaps forward in terms of technology. People sit around, they putter around in their basements and garages, they figure out how something works, they try it and they realize, well, that didn't work. Let me tweak it a little bit and try it again. Meanwhile, someone else across the country is trying something similar. All of this process has to involve failure and experimentation. What we've done in the financial industry is we've made it so hard for that process to move forward that it really, I think, has slowed down innovation. And to your point, has really deflated people who have come in and said, hey, I want to try something. They run into the, is it legal question? And then, yeah, maybe it's legal, but you've got to go through these 15 hoops, which is going to take you three years to do. By that point, you're thinking, I got to pay my kids college education. So I better go work in traditional finance, forget trying this new thing. You said something there that I've been thinking about. Regulators, if they understood it, would have this appreciation. Warren Buffett has this quote about, you can see who's naked when the tide goes out. Blockchain to me is like always being naked. You can see all the transactions all the time. So I think about being from TradeFi now going to this world, wouldn't it be amazing if you could have seen Lehman's balance sheet every second of every day? And it was hard, but the SEC could look into it. Has there been a thought, not so much on the regulation of industry participants, but how that might revolutionize Edgar or how we look at financials of companies at the SEC? That's one of the things I would like us to exercise a little more imagination and see the value of the transparency that this technology can bring and how that could revolutionize the way things in the traditional finance world are done and could help us with some of the problems that have dogged us for years. Surprises about what's on people's balance sheets or the concentration of the financial industry in a few large institutions. Those things can be potentially addressed through decentralization, through open sourcing of things, through blockchains, which let you track transactions. 
I agree with you. I think we've not fully recognized the benefits that this technology could offer us with respect to those core problems that we as regulators worry about all the time. How do you think we get there? How do you think that regulators start to see some of the benefits? Is it that we just have to set up a regulatory framework to begin with so that we can build on top of it? Maybe this is a good time to talk about your safe harbor proposal and how safe harbors work within the SEC. Over time, people will recognize the potential for the technology. You're seeing that a little bit in terms of people tracking what some bad actors have done. It's easier to track it if you've got digital assets than if you had cash, for example. People are gradually awakening to that. I don't know that it's going to be easy to fully show the potential for regulation without making some more progress on the private side of what can be done with blockchain and digital assets. I do want to say here, before we turn to the safe harbor, I just want to say one other thing, which is this technology is powerful and it will be powerful for regulators eventually when regulators realize that. But it could also be used in a bad way by governments and by regulators as we encourage regulators to think about how this technology could help them achieve their regulatory objectives, we also need to be a little cautious. And we need to remember that protecting privacy of individual citizens is extremely important. You don't necessarily, even if the regulator can, from a technology standpoint, watch everything that's going on, you want to ask the question of whether that's appropriate or not. It's sort of like now regulators can consume tremendous amounts of data. We can pull in lots of data and we can sort through it and we can see what's going on. But you still have to ask the question whether that's a good idea for the regulator to be doing that because the regulator is watching a lot more of the activity in the economy. That means there's less privacy for citizens. And so we have to think about that balance. That's my cautionary note. I like that a lot. When I was thinking about questions, talking to a friend, they went to the same spot and my mind missed it because I was like, oh, no, no, I don't want them to look at my personal account. I was saying to start investigating large corporations where in the crisis, when people didn't exactly know how interconnected stuff was, I couldn't echo it more for individual privacy, but a corporation that has assets that's systemically risky, it would seem a better way to track those assets between large banks and big financial players. I've heard you talk about this before, and I think it is a good point about how some of these issues probably wouldn't have arisen if there had been more transparency, the kind of transparency that decentralized finance blockchain can bring. Even with corporations, you can imagine a situation in which there's continuous information flowing from corporations to the government. Corporations are only conglomerations of private citizens acting. So you still have to ask the question whether you want to have all of that information flowing immediately into the government. Maybe we as a society do, but I certainly think there are people who would push back against that and say, no, just because some people come together to build something doesn't mean that the government gets to have a seat and watch everything that's going on there. There are always competing issues that you have to think about. I'm a little bit sensitive to this now because the SEC has been in a years-long process of setting up this consolidated audit trail, which is basically a way for us to watch all of the activity in the stock markets, to see all of the orders, all of the transactions that occur there, and to be able to track those back to individual traders. I find that really troubling because I think if people haven't done anything wrong, there's no reason that the government should be seeing all of their transactions in the securities markets. I don't think that's appropriate, even if it might be convenient for us as regulators. I don't think that the privacy cost of that, putting aside other real costs about potential hackability of that kind of a database, 
privacy concerns do matter. And I think it's going to be very easy for those to get trampled as it gets easier for government to pull in data and analyze it. It's going to be very tempting for people just to say, okay, fine, well, if I haven't done anything wrong, why shouldn't the government have my data? That tends to not lead to good things in the long run. So we have to be very careful about that. I would never want to be a regulator. I think about how hard it is to try to strike this balance of unintended consequences and what seemed like a good idea of the best intention having these knock-on effects later. I think it's just an extremely hard job that you and the staff have to do, especially with something moving as fast as crypto. Being a regulator is difficult for the reasons that you cite. It's also difficult because you want to make sure that you use the authority that you have in a responsible way. It's a real honor to be in one of these positions, but you have to use that responsibility very carefully. I've seen at my agency the dedication and the hard work of the people who work at this agency, but sometimes we also, as a society, need to pull back and think about these bigger questions. I think this is a wonderful opportunity for us to do that because the new technology does provide us new options as regulators. It's one of those moments where we ought to step back and have some of these broader, more fundamental philosophical conversations rather than 10 years later, look back and say, oh, we shouldn't have gone about it that way. We should have been more protective of privacy. That's what I'm hoping to spur people to think about and talk about. From participating in it, you definitely have something I really enjoy and am proud of, of this idea of accountability when you're operating crypto. I told someone once it feels like unfettered capitalism in some ways of like, it's not something that feels normal. But what's so interesting from a safety security standpoint, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on self-regulation, is that because a lot of these DeFi protocols are fully transparent, when there's hacks and they get a lot of the headlines, probably more than they deserve, but when there's a hack or malicious activity... It's not found by a regulator. It's usually found by someone in the community going through code. And I'm always amazed by it. Every time it happens, I'm like, this is so remarkable that when there's thousands of eyes looking at the same thing, someone raises their hand and goes, this isn't good. Now, sometimes we've gone too far because we're in that at the beach with sharks in the water and the money is gone and everyone should be warned of that. But it's remarkable that it's the people using it that self-report like there's something wrong here. We need to stop this. It's consistent with what you would expect. We regulators, I told you, we have 4,500 people, but we've got immense markets to oversee. We have to figure out ways to do that. What better way than trying to have eyes all over the place looking at things? And I agree with you. The beauty of having code out there for everyone to see is you can have a lot of people checking on it. Now, sometimes you end up with a situation we've had, as you mentioned, some big hacks and a lot of money taken. As more money flows in and there are these pools of money out there, it's not surprising that people are going to look for ways to steal that. But that also means that you've got more eyes looking at the code to try to ensure that there aren't vulnerabilities that someone can exploit. I think that that's a really powerful concept. Do I think that everyone is going to want to be a participant in DeFi, a direct participant in DeFi? No, that's always the case. There are people who are going to want to go through centralized intermediaries, may not even know that they're participating in DeFi indirectly. And that's fine too. The whole premise is that you do have people out there who are going to be looking at the code. If it's out there, there will be people who will play that role. You don't need to have everyone in the whole country pouring over code. You just need to have an active group of people who are willing to do that. This comes back to our point about your safe harbor, having block explorers and the right level of transparency. I was always in the fixed income business, but I started in municipal bonds. 
Detroit and Puerto Rico had tens of thousands of pieces of paper that hypothetically retail was supposed to read to understand what they were buying. They were inundated with information. That didn't help the situation or maybe help them understand. They were buying a instrument. It is interesting when you have a skin in the game mentality that people have capital at risk. So they have a natural incentive to want to know if this thing's not good, then money should leave the system. And if you can see that, I find that is a completely different way to think about, is this a safe investment? It is. Having more eyes on what's going on. And as you say, having eyes who have a real incentive to pay attention to what's going on can be a pretty powerful game changer. To get to the safe harbor point, what I was trying to do when I put out the safe harbor, which is essentially a safe harbor for token distribution events to allow token distribution events to happen. The question is always, is this a securities offering or not? What I wanted to say is, let's get to the regulatory objective here, which is a valid one. You want people who are buying these tokens to have a sense of what it is they're buying. Let's not even try to figure out whether it's a securities offering. Let's just say that anti-fraud rules apply. You have to provide these pieces of information so that people can make an assessment about the team that's behind this project and about the plans and about the token economics. And they can track the progress because there'll be an obligation to update those disclosures periodically. At the end of three years, you ought to have a pretty good sense of whether this network is decentralized. There are a lot of questions around what decentralization are, and I get that. But at least what you're trying to do is address the information asymmetries that exist at the beginning of a network launch and make sure that that information is flowing until you get to the point when it doesn't really matter who the original project team development team was because the network is up and running and functioning and there are a lot of people participating. There's not one core group that has more information than anyone else. Where does that safe harbor stand? In limbo. What does it take to move it forward? I put this out and tried to get public comment on it. It's on GitHub. So if anyone wants to look at it, they can go there and look at it make changes to it, suggested changes, so forth. The idea was that I would convince my colleagues at the SEC to actually put it out for comment or something similar. So far, I haven't gotten a lot of traction because my colleagues look at the situation and they say, we've got great securities rules. They've worked for years. The Howey test is what we want to see applied here. Once that's applied and you decide something's a securities offering, then you just go ahead and apply the traditional rules. When I raise my hand and I say, well, wait a minute, even if you decide that this token was sold as part of a securities offering, the implications of then calling it a security for the rest of its life are really pretty fundamental to the ability of these networks even to operate. We need to think about the consequences of calling everything a security, and we're not doing that. But I still haven't gotten my colleagues over the point of thinking that the securities laws operate great as is and don't need any modifications. When you first thought about crypto and the Howey test, and if it fit, did you think that we could use the existing laws and that it was a change the business model? When did your thinking move to we actually need a new definition or am I misunderstanding? No, you're not misunderstanding. I think the securities laws were written in a really clever way in the sense that the U.S. Congress, when they wrote the securities laws, did not define security narrowly. They defined it broadly because you do want to capture anything that is operating as a security, even if it's not called a security. The Howey test is the interpretation of one prong of the securities definition, the investment contract. 
that Howey test, I think, has been applied not only in crypto, but in other places quite broadly. Part of that is it's supposed to be when you put money into something and the promoters tell you, just sit back, you don't have to do anything, your investment is going to grow. That's what the Howey test is designed to capture. But we've, in effect, taken out the idea that it has to be solely based on the efforts of others. Over time, the way the Howey test has been applied has not always been the way I would have liked to see it applied, because I think if it's applied the way it's been applied, it could cover lots of things that we wouldn't traditionally consider to be securities. So that's problematic. My view on whether we needed to work on accommodating this technology with some changes has developed gradually over time. The the important point to remember is that Congress saw this coming. They didn't see crypto coming, but they saw coming that there would be things that would require some tweaks. And that's why they gave us broad exemptive authority. We have the authority to do it. All we have to do is use the authority we have. My safe harbor is one potential way to do that. By no means the only one. And other people have suggested other approaches. That's great, too. I'm just trying to get the ball rolling on having us think about how can we use our exemptive authority in a way that makes sense. That's been my gradual awakening to realize it doesn't have to be a rejection of the securities laws as is, which I don't want to do and I don't think my colleagues want to do, but rather an embracing of the side of our securities laws to allow some of this experimentation and accommodate some of these new technologies. Reading it, you have this idea that perhaps at the initial raise, a group goes to a venture capital and they have created a security, but they have a three-year safe harbor. And then explain this idea that something could go from security and then to a non-security. Are there any instruments that can do that today? The important point to remember is that when you're selling a token and it's part of a securities offering, the token itself is not the security anyway. It's the token plus the promises that go with it that are the security. So the idea is that at some point, the promises around that token are not important anymore. The token is just off doing its own thing. People are buying and selling the token because of what the token does, not because of the promises that track along with it or did at the beginning. That's the evolution that I see. You've moved beyond the securities laws when those promises aren't important anymore, basically. This is not an easy area. You've seen different people wrestle with how to approach this, but we can both accommodate the real interest in protecting the token purchaser and getting that token purchaser the information that she needs to make a decision, but also allowing these networks to grow and flourish and move away from where the securities laws would govern all of the transactions that go on. There's this idea of the SEC enforcing through guidance and through enforcement, bringing cases. I'm curious about the calculus when you're in the debates of should we bring a case? When precedent gets set, I think when people think about, oh, the SEC brought a case, I think they assume the SEC always wins. When you're leading a commission, and this is the two sides you have to do it in a courtroom or do it with guidance, is there a risk to the SEC of losing a case? And then that having been like, oh, we should have done guidance? It's important to remember that in many cases, when we bring an enforcement action, we announce the enforcement action and announce the settlement on the same day. It's quite difficult and expensive to litigate against the SEC. A lot of people choose not to do that. So while those settlements don't have precedential value, they do end up defining the way industry does things or shaping the way industry does things. 
we can have that effect without anyone really checking on whether we got the law right. Now, if you have a litigation where a company or an individual says, no, I'm going to fight the charges and I'm going to go through the litigation, then you can get a court opinion. And as you say, it could come out in a way that says, no, you SEC got it wrong, or they could say you SEC got it right. Certainly, that's a calculus that we have to take into account when we're deciding whether to bring a case. I think it's important when we bring cases to be well within the authority that Congress has given us. We're not trying to do anything dramatic. We're trying to stay exactly within the bounds that Congress gave us because that's what matters. Congress gave us the authority. We use the authority we have, and that's what we should be doing. People can differ on where they see the law. Sometimes I might see it in one place and others might see it to be broader than I see it. That's just something we have to think about. What I've said time and again in this space is that it is important for us not to be making law with enforcement actions, not to use enforcement actions to provide clarity. Why not? Instead, I'd like us to do some rulemaking in this area, but even to put out some guidance and say, look, we see these trends happening. We see that this is a common practice in crypto. And here's where we see the potential securities law issues arising from that activity. Why not put that out there so that people are on notice that, hey, here are some things we're thinking about. It's better to do that kind of thing through notice and comment, because then you can get different perspectives, you can get the fuller picture. We, again, have tools that we could use to try to make this a public debate about how the securities laws should apply in this space. We can't do that if we're doing everything through enforcement. Because by their nature, enforcement actions mean that you've got an entity or individuals that the SEC is considering bringing an enforcement action against on the one side, and you have the SEC on the other. They're negotiating, but they're not doing that in public. They're doing that behind closed doors. And they come up with a settlement that works well for that party that they've negotiated to work as well as possible for them without consideration for how that then might be affecting other entities and individuals' conduct. That's one of the issues that I have with the use of enforcement actions to drive policy. Yeah, it felt like that with the BlockFi settlement. There was certain parties offering interest, other parties not. And then all of a sudden there was a settlement. It didn't feel like there was much of a discussion before that enforcement action, at least publicly, with all the market participants. I agree. That's one of the reasons that I dissented from that enforcement action. Using an enforcement action, again, to lay out regulatory policy is not a good way of doing things. Let's go to like where there is a common period. There was this notice on the eight, the um, alternative trading systems, which I had thought was from our fixed income days when we were trading treasuries on software like TradeWeb and Market Access. People started to make this connection on Twitter and I totally missed it of like, what are you talking about that the ATS for this random part of the fixed income market has anything to do with Bitcoin ETF? What is it about that proposal and the comment period that made those two connect? The bulk of the proposal has to do with thinking about fixed income, thinking about how the definition of exchange in our rules might need to be expanded to encompass some of these systems that are out there that are facilitating trading. We introduced in that proposal a new term, communications protocol system. That term is a broad and amorphous term. And a lot of people looked at it. I looked at it and said, this seems like it could encompass lots of things. So we ought to put this out for comment, giving people a long enough time to really sit back and think, what might this apply to? Instead, we put it out for a pretty short comment period. 
I'm really grateful that a lot of people actually did take a look at this, not just people in the fixed income space, but people all across the spectrum, including a lot of people in crypto. And they said, whoa, if we read this definition, we think it covers lots of things that maybe it wasn't intended to cover. So SEC, could you please go back and think about how you might want to rewrite this? I'm certainly still in the process of reading through comments, and I and my colleagues will take all of those comments into account as we think about what to do going forward. But I mean, that is the value of the comment process. Sometimes it helps us think about things in a way that we don't think about here, or we didn't think about it here. It allows for new perspectives. I'm hopeful that the comments we got will shape a final rule that I can support. I wasn't able to support the proposal. But if we could shape it in a way that made more sense to cover the things we wanted to cover, but not things we don't intend to and don't have authority to cover. That brings up the thing it feels like everyone asks about is Bitcoin ETF. In some ways, I find it funny that this single product has gotten the mind share of so many people as this issue that people fight over. Does this make it any more likely or do we need every spot Bitcoin market to be regulated by the SEC before we get an ETF? That's the question that I've been asked probably next to why do you have accredited investor limitations when Bitcoin spot ETF or ETP as it actually would be is the most common question I get. I don't know because as I've said in the past, I don't understand the rationale that we've used to deny past applicants. So it's hard for me to predict what would be the thing that would be needed to let one move forward. Chair Gensler has made it clear that he thinks that spot markets should be regulated, made comments about the SEC being a potential regulator or the SEC together with the CFTC, perhaps. Maybe once you have large spot markets regulated, it's harder to make the argument which has been made that the underlying markets are not regulated. But again, I've argued that I think on existing facts and circumstances I've seen, I thought we should have approved one four years ago. This might sound naive, but I believe that when you ask the SEC for approval, they have a certain window to act. But if they just keep saying no, is there any way to challenge the facts and circumstances or you just have to keep asking? Can they go to court if they want to appeal it? Generally, any final agency action can be appealed to a court. Once there's a final decision from the commission that can be appealed up, whether it's with respect to an exchange-traded product listing or any other final agency action can be appealed and considered by a court. I wanted to move to NFTs. They're a big area of people's interest. I think in some people's mind, at least through a regulatory lens, they seemed much further away from a security because it's art or it's a image or it's a game token. You've mentioned this idea of NFT financialization potentially going into the regulatory area. Could you speak a little bit more about how NFTs might need to potentially be regulated? The reason that I brought that up is I just think people need to be thinking about SEC regulation and other types of financial regulation when they engage in this space, because there are ways that you can trip those laws. People need to think about that. That's why I made that point. You see sometimes fractionalization, you see maybe revenue flowing to NFT holders from a project, you see NFTs being used as the basis for collateral for loans. I'm not saying that necessarily, I mean, facts and circumstances really do matter. You see NFTs associated with governance rights. All of those things could potentially raise regulatory issues and people need to think about them. I'm not taking a position on any particular NFT any particular set of facts and circumstances I've seen. 
I think given now my comments about how enforcement has been used to set policy in the crypto space generally, I think people need to be wary and need to be careful. Fair warning. So on DAOs, I'd be curious to get your thoughts. It seems like people have compared it to when we formed the LLC and how important that was for economic development. What are your thoughts on DAOs and how they're evolving? I think the DAO is an interesting way of organizing human activity. I'm always interested to see different ways that people can cooperate with one another to build something. The DAO is taking advantage, leveraging this new technology to enable people to participate and govern themselves in a way that they haven't been able to before. That's fascinating to see. There definitely are legal questions that are arising. I think some states are trying to grapple with that. You've seen Wyoming, for example, trying to grapple with that. And a lot of that grappling will have to be done at the state level because states are typically the sources of corporate law. And I think this is an alternative to a corporation or potentially a DAO could be fused together with a corporation somehow. I don't know what the future holds, but there'll be some legal challenges. Because when a group of people get together to do something, if something goes wrong, there are a lot of different parts of the government that are going to look, and not only the government, people interacting with the DAOs, the private citizens and companies interacting with DAOs, people are going to look for someone that they can hold accountable if something goes wrong. Figuring out how that works is a very interesting legal issue, one that we'll see lots of people thinking about in the upcoming months and years. It's been very interesting. If you told me that hundreds of people from around the world that I've never met could coordinate, I would have said, this doesn't seem possible until you actually participate. And then you're like, this is working, but this looks like nothing I've ever done or been a participant of before. So there's really interesting questions there of, again, how does this new technology fit into either our existing legal structure or what do we have to do to let that progress continue? It's a very exciting development in the sense that one of the reasons I like the idea of this is that it does enable people to participate in the economy who might not otherwise have been able to. It allows us to draw in talent and expertise from people who might have been left out before. It is worth us spending some time thinking about what is the right legal structure around these. How do you think about the fact that there's these stats of, I think it was greater than 70% of the people under Bitcoin were born after 1980, that the underbanked population is using it and feeling it's an actual opportunity to get loans or move money around. Does that impact the SEC's agenda? That was one of the questions I didn't get to ask you of, how much is the chairperson's agenda or control impacted by society really wants this? Can you help them get exposure to it? I think you have to talk to the chair about his agenda. Every chair of the SEC comes in with some ideas about what he or she wants to do and then confronts a whole array of circumstances and events that couldn't have been predicted. And that also helps to define the agenda. Certainly hearing from people that they want to be able to participate in particular markets or that a particular product interests them can be helpful. But regulatory agencies tend to move a bit more slowly than some people would want them to move. It's in many ways good that we're not a regulatory agency that just moves with the latest trend. You want consistency over time in regulation. There's a process by which regulation happens, and that process takes time. That's what you would want to have happen. But we do have lots of opportunities for people to comment. I think those comments matter. They're important. All of us on the commission take those comments into account as we think about what to do. You touched on a lot of the parts of the agenda. The only one I think I was missing was stablecoins. It's a really interesting development. 
again, without participating, it didn't make sense to me at first. I thought, is this just a money market fund? What is this? Until you actually have to start moving money in a decentralized system, you realize how critical it is. What are your thoughts on stable coins and how those are developed? They have become really important and very widely used. There are different stable coins, so it's hard to paint them all with the same brush. Some of them may have securities implications. There's some people who have suggested they're better regulated sort of as payment mechanisms. There are different potential regulatory models. I can see there's an interest in making sure people understand what's backing the stable coin. So maybe a regulatory structure is the appropriate way to get that clarity. Of course, there are already market pressures driving clarity in this area. People have asked. They want to know what's backing them. We've already seen change in that regard in terms of more transparency. I do hope that whatever regulatory model Congress settles on, it recognizes the value that these stablecoins have, the role that they play. And frankly, when people are talking about a central bank digital currency, they might look to stablecoins as being an alternative to having to have a central bank digital currency. It's a private alternative to that, allows for some competition. To harken back to our earlier discussion, allows for more privacy. You don't have the government involved in knowing what everyone's transactions are. It'll be very interesting to see what happens on the regulatory front with respect to stablecoins, because there is quite a bit of interest both in Congress and at the regulatory level around stablecoins. Some large participants have asked for a new regulator or some sort of single regulator. I know you've made comments on a new regulator might muddy the waters, but could you talk about the challenges of working across the existing regulators? There's so many acronyms, the SEC, the CFTC, there's so many already. And also, what role, if any, self-regulating organizations might play in the future of crypto regulation? The U.S. does have a lot of federal regulators, and then there's a whole set of state regulators as well. So it can be very daunting for anyone who's trying to build anything to try to figure out how to navigate that regulatory framework. I think Congress has a role to play in deciding, obviously, it's their choice who gets to be the regulator of this space. It would be nice for us to work more closely with the CFTC, for example, our sister regulator in the capital market space. I hope that we will do that over the coming years. In general, I think because crypto is likely to be infused through a lot of what we do, not we the SEC, but we society, setting up a separate regulator to deal with just crypto may be difficult because it'll be intertwined with so many of the things that traditional financial institutions do. How do you separate that out? It would be difficult to do that. But I think what's happened is that Congress has looked in frustration at the existing regulators and the way we've handled crypto regulation so far. And they've said, well, if you all can't do it, we'll just create a new regulator and they'll do it. I understand that frustration. It's frustration I feel myself. In terms of self-regulation, we talked about before, and I think you made some great points about how the technology allows for self-regulation in a way that has not been possible in the past. That's one type of self-regulation, the self-regulation that emanates from a technology that encourages participation by people directly without intermediaries through open source, and everyone participates on the same terms. There is an, in it, a natural self-regulation built in. But you can also imagine self-regulatory organizations arising, and I think there are people who are working on creating these that are made up of people who understand the technology very well because they do use it themselves and they're involved in the business. They're able to be nimble. They're able to build rules that are technologically sound. 
So that is an option. But I will say that slotting a self-regulator into the existing structure can be difficult too. People need to be aware that it adds another layer, which means that when the self-regulator does something, then that decision percolates up to the regulator and it can actually slow things down. So people need to think about all different kinds of structures. This is a time when we can have that conversation about what regulatory structure makes sense. I'm not weighing in in favor of any particular one, but I think as you have the conversation, you need to think about the positives and the negatives of each approach. And I appreciate all of your comments and speeches because it's just helped people have a perspective in hearing your opinion on it has been really helpful. Usually we end these podcasts with the same question, but I'm going to change it a little bit because I have a very special guest. So I wanted to know, what are you excited to try to see get achieved at the SEC over the rest of your term, which I think ends in 25? And then as you look out to the future, what are some exciting dates or events that you're interested in watching in this entire space? Well, in terms of what I would like to see the agency do is just have some very productive, proactive conversations around regulation where we could really put out some guidance, some regulatory frameworks that would allow the experimentation to happen in a way that makes sense. I would love to see us do something like that, and I hope it will happen. In terms of what I'm looking at beyond that, it's not any particular date that I have in mind or any particular event. I just really look forward to seeing how people find ways to use the technology, how people use that technology to involve more people in the economy, to enable more people to contribute their talents. That, to me, is very exciting when you see new technology being a tool to unlock the talent that people have had, but they've been on the sidelines. That's good not only for those people. It can mean a real difference for them and for their children as they're able to benefit from the fruits of their talents. But it's also huge for our society because you think about all those people who are out there whose great minds have been working away, but no one else has been able to benefit from what's been going on in their minds for all the education and experience they have. And now we have a chance to pull that in. And that's exciting to me. That's a perfect place to end. Commissioner Purse, thank you so much for your time. It's been an honor to get the chance to interview you. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. It's been great to talk to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 